Good morning, everyone. So in this season of ordinary time or this season after Pentecost, we have been hearing the story of who are called the patriarchs of the, and really we should be saying the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. Uh, we hear these stories throughout uh, the life of the family of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac, of Jacob. Um, and we're hearing today the end of the story of Joseph. Joseph was someone who lived a dramatic roller coaster in his life, if you've ever heard this story before. From being his father's favorite son, to being despised by his brothers, to being sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, to serving the king, to prison, to becoming second in command of all of Egypt. This life has been crazy for him. And every time I read the story, I think about how difficult it must have been for Joseph to be betrayed by his brothers and the constant yo-yo that came as a result of that. What this man carried with him throughout his life is significant. And the story raises, the story of Joseph raises an important question for Israel, which is a question we ask ourselves all the time. Will God once again be faithful or will he not? This is often the story of our lives, the question of our lives. Will God be faithful? Does God hear me? Does God see the state of our world? Will we make it through this? These kinds of questions. In Joseph's case, he was given these dreams as reminders of God's faithfulness. Those dreams pointed him somewhere to God's new world that he could not yet see. Now, Joseph didn't always handle those dreams in appropriate ways. <laughs> we see that he kind of rubbed uh, the dreams in his brother's noses. Yet it was the dreams that kept Joseph going. They were reminders to Joseph, God's taking you somewhere. When his life was bulldozed, which happened multiple times, it was the dreams to which Joseph held on. And this is true not just for Joseph, but for God's people as a whole. We see in the story that Joseph's brothers are representatives of Israel, of the people of God. Time and time again in the Bible, God attempts to get Israel's attention through dreams, through prophecies, and yet they're unfaithful. But if we're too hard on Israel, and we, which sometimes we as Christians can tend to do that, we can look at the Old Testament and we can go, yeah, Israel, they just never quite got it right. No, Israel always in the story is a microcosm of humanity <laughs> in general. When God speaks, the response is so often rejection and exclusion, to shut down the dreams and to kill the dreamer. And yet in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, God shows his faithfulness. So again, our reading today in the Old Testament is a culmination of the Joseph story. So at this time, it had been many years since his brother sold him into slavery. He was 17 when that happened, and now he's 39. As a 39-year-old myself, I put myself in this story and go, okay, it was a long time since I've been 17 years old. A lifetime has passed. They are brought together, Joseph and his brothers, because of a famine. That's the occasion. Joseph's brothers had been sent by their father, Jacob, to buy grain in Egypt. So you got this famine going on and Jacob sends the brothers and says, go to Egypt because there's grain there and go buy grain in Egypt. So they make the long journey and then they don't even recognize their brother who is now a great ruler. They don't even see him for who he is. In verse four, we see Joseph reveals himself to his brothers the one whom they thought was dead is alive and has risen to power. After his great reversal, 
Joseph doesn't lash out in anger or shame or revenge against his brothers. Instead, he recognizes that it is God who has led him and sustained him the entire time. In fact, he attributes his entire journey, all the ups and downs and everything to God's faithfulness, to God doing something in and through his life. God has been faithful and Joseph tells his brothers, the whole reason he's endured so many trials is to save them. That's the whole point of this whole thing is their salvation. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers changes things. So I talked about Joseph and how Joseph has carried a lot of baggage and grief in his life. Think about the baggage the brothers carried with them. One might imagine that they had been carrying immense guilt for the ways in which they had rejected their brothers and eventually sold him into slavery. From the earliest days of the church, commentators have seen Joseph as a forerunner of Christ foreshadowing the one who was rejected by his own family, both Israel and the human family, because he carried a new vision for the world. So in their guilt and their fear, Joseph says to his brothers, come to me. Well, that reminds us of Jesus's words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But the parallels don't end there. So just as Joseph's brothers were terrified and distressed, so were Jesus's disciples. And Jesus says to them, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. I'm sorry, this is Joseph's words. Joseph says to his brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And we think about Jesus's words on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Joseph sees his brothers as a people who do not know what they're doing and are in need of salvation. It would be so easy for Joseph to say, guys, look at what you did to me. Look at the shame that you caused me to carry. Look at the trajectory that my life went through. It would be easy for Joseph to say, but look at how I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, even though you did that to me. It would be easy for Joseph to respond in revenge, but that's not how he understands his story. He sees everything that he's gone through, the pain and the difficulty and the rejection, and he sees it for the purpose of their salvation, for them. Just as Joseph revealed himself to his brothers as being alive and not dead, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples after the resurrection and says, why are you disturbed? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Feel and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you have. I thought this week as I prepared this about the fear and rejection and insecurity and guilt that so many of us carry with us through our lives. I believe that so many things, like when we gather for worship here on Sundays in this church fellowship hall, Sometimes it's a a crowd of us. Sometimes it's a few of us. And I think actually a bunch of things happen in this moment, some of which we're aware of and some of which we're not. But at the very least, God meets us in the dark places of our lives and shines his light. Sometimes when I feel those kind of things that I described earlier, fear, rejection, insecurity, guilt, all those things, sometimes I want to just shake myself and say, 
Preston, you are a Christian. <laughs> Christ's resurrection means you're forgiven. Christ's resurrection means you have a new identity. Christ's resurrection means you are his and he, are, he is yours. You don't have to fear all that stuff or carry all that stuff anymore. But this good news is not just for Christians. It's the proclamation that goes out into the world. As Christians, we encounter those places of fear and guilt and we're called to shine light. Joseph's proclamation does a few things for his brothers in this moment. First, Joseph's proclamation supersedes his brother's guilt, okay? So it would be easy for this to be like, for us to read the story and it to be, Joseph looks at everything they did to him and then they, he kind of forgets it or ignores it. But no, he doesn't do that. He acknowledges the wrongdoing. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold in slavery in Egypt. <laughs> you did this, okay? But God has done something with this. This is not denial. This is not, it's okay, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. No, this is, this pain has happened. You have done this, but God has done something with it. Joseph is able to acknowledge what happened and then he releases his brothers because God has been faithful. We can release the offense in forgiveness because God has been faithful. Not because it's just okay and it didn't really hurt us that bad. No, we're only able to because we say, God has been faithful. Second, Joseph's proclamation supersedes their father's fear. Jacob believes that Joseph has died. That's how he lives his life. Because of his loss, he's locked up. He's deeply afraid he will lose another son, Benjamin. Fear can often cause us to forget the faithfulness of God. If we truly believe that God is faithful, we're reminded there is more to the story. We do not have to be afraid. And third, Joseph's proclamation supersedes his need for revenge. So Joseph doesn't try to get even with his brothers for what they've done. Why? Because God is faithful. If I really believe in a loving, compassionate God who is faithful even in suffering, why would I wanna lash out at others? No, I want to reflect the character and nature of that God. Unfortunately, we live in a world that is often so driven by lashing out. I have been hurt, I've been offended, and therefore I carry that and I lash out at others. I put them in their place. I own them, right? This is really the center of culture wars, isn't it? It's this, I have feel this deep, hurtful pain and so therefore, I'm afraid there's not gonna be enough in the world. There's not enough love, there's not enough approval, enough money or success for everyone. So I need to put that other person, that other team, that other side in their place. The good news that everybody needs to hear, the one who was dead is alive. This good news supersedes our guilt, our imposter syndrome, our shame, our fear, it supersedes our, our fear of death, and it supersedes our need for revenge. Our gospel reading today, I think, points us in some of these same directions. It's uncomfortable, though, and it's okay to name the discomfort. Like, this story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman is really hard to read. <laughs> it appears from the surface that Jesus refuses to help someone because of their race. 
It's good that it makes us uncomfortable, if that's what we read. This is what these scriptures are intended to do, to bring things to the surface, to change us, which always means to challenge us. Okay, so what happens in the story? A woman approaches Jesus. Our reading tells us she's a Canaanite woman, so she's non-Jewish. She's a Gentile. And if you're a Jewish person in the first century, there's a couple different things that come to mind when you think of Canaanite. And they, like your cultural memory has all these alarm bells that go off. And the first thing is in the book of Joshua. Joshua is this leader of the Israelites and God calls him to conquer the Canaanites. And he does that, okay? Well, the name Jesus in Hebrew is the same name as the word Joshua. So here we have a new Joshua. In fact, the word means Yahweh saves. Joshua, Jesus, same name, Yahweh saves. So our story in the New Testament, we have, think about if you're a Jewish person in the first century, you have a Canaanite person and then you have the new Joshua. Okay, I know that story. We're supposed to conquer the Canaanites, right? Like that's our story again. So, so that comes to your mind. These are our cultural enemies, our rivals to God's people. But there's another part of the story where Canaanites come up. So it's kind of complicated, right? Canaanites are actually part of Jesus's genealogy. They include two Canaanite women, Tamar and Rahab. So the reader knows in a deep theological sense, a Canaanite woman is not just a rival. She's also family in some way, right? So both of these competing things come to this story. Now, if we remember, Jesus's ministry is almost exclusively among the Jewish regions at this time and to Jewish people. Now, we see a few stories in the Gospels where Jesus has an impact on Roman centurions, on Samaritans, but his ministry was mostly among the people of Israel. It wasn't until a generation after Jesus that he wrestled with what it meant for Gentiles or the church wrestled with what it meant for Gentiles to be part of the church. So Jesus's focus on Israel is appropriate to his mission because the story of the Old Testament and the story of God's people has always been God's promise to bring healing to the world through the people of Israel. If Jesus and his disciples show up on the scene and they're just healing everywhere indiscriminately, it would be a fine story, a good story, but it would not be consistent with the way God had operated in the past. God had chosen to work through a specific people, the people of Israel, for the sake of the world. Okay, so the woman who approaches Jesus is a Canaanite and her daughter's possessed by a demon and suffering. The first thing that happens is Jesus ignores her. Now, this was a typical posture of a rabbi with a Jewish mission because his mission is focused it's on the people of Israel. Jesus does something that to us looks really rude, <laughs> if not awful, but it was a cultural practice. Still, the woman approaches Jesus with great faith. She not only believes he can heal her daughter, she calls him son of David, which is a Jewish title. In fact, even the disciples were hesitant to use the term son of David because what it meant was he is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, period. So what this woman does is she acknowledges his mission and his role, but she still sits on the edges. She's looking for something from him. She stands on the margins and she's looking for Jesus to heal her daughter. The disciples tell Jesus to send her away. 
And Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So I was sent only to this group of people. Now, again, if we read this in our 21st century lenses, we have all kinds of questions. Is Jesus being racist? Is he being sexist? Why won't he even talk to her? On the one hand, by ignoring her and continuing with his mission, this is really exactly what he is supposed to do according to the common views of the time. He's walking a party line here. And the people of God have always felt this tension between being faithful to what God called them to do, faithful to the mission, narrow in that sense, and a blessing to everybody. There's always been that tension. When are we supposed to be narrow and focused? When are we supposed to be broad and open? You guys can see how this plays out even in religious cultures today. Like how do we live in this kind of tension, the narrow and the broad? Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were often forbidden from intermingling with other nations. Why? Is it because of ethnocentrism or whatever? No. It's because in that time, intermingling with other nations was synonymous with idolatry. So that's how tribal cultures worked. In the world of the Old Testament, um, it wasn't like everybody had their own belief that they held on to. Each individual person, yeah, I believe in this thing or I believe in that thing. No, gods were always associated with peoples. So whatever people you were a part of, that was your God. So to mix with other peoples often meant you added on their gods into your life or the life of your community. If you mixed with other people, you mixed with their gods. Now, there are exceptions in the Old Testament. Those exceptions point us to the larger story that I'm going to talk about. But in the ancient world, the Jewish people were also unique in that they believed in one God. Most of the, the nations of the world had many gods. They were polytheists is what that's called. But the Jewish people only believed in one God. So Israel was strange. And if your faith centers on the belief in one God, you obviously can't add any more and be consistent or faithful to your faith, right? So in the Old Testament, when Israel mixed with other nations, it wasn't that they stopped worshiping Yahweh and they worshiped something else. It was they worshiped Yahweh plus something else. And at certain points in the Old Testament, God is so concerned about them being faithful to the worship of the one true God that he protects them from mixing with other religions by forbidding them to marry or associate with other people groups. They're even given symbols of this. So for example, if you read some of the Old Testament laws and you go, why the heck were they told to do this? Like they couldn't wear mixed fabrics, right? Like only 100% of a certain fabric. You can't wear any mixed fabrics. Why? Is it because God really cares about all the blending of fabrics? No, it was to show them that they weren't to mix their faith. It was a consistent reminder in what they wear that they would be faithful to the one true God. However, along with this faithfulness, Israel's mission from the very beginning has been a people to bless all nations. They're called to bless all people everywhere. This is where there's the tension. Faithfulness requires being set apart. You've heard this language before, right? living differently, living holy, right? And blessing requires arms outstretched, embracing, fully present in the lives of others. We can see this conflict in our own lives. 
Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition that was really, really focused on holiness, right? What's the old saying? Like, don't, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, right? <laughs> Some of the holiness traditions where, you know, the extreme forms of that that I was just adjacent to at certain times is don't go to movies, don't dance, don't play cards. That whole idea is this hyper-focus on being different, being set apart, which God's people are called to be set apart. And yet often what happens is there's such that focus on being set apart that we lose track of the bigger picture that we're also called to bless the world. Left to our own devices, we inevitably either exclude other people and push them away, or we mix. We do one or the other. Jesus points out this tension with the Pharisees, this cultural group that was closest to Jesus and how they viewed the law. Stop there for a second and just say, the Pharisees sometimes in Christianity are talked about as bad guys, as the opponents of Jesus. The reason why Jesus tended to butt heads with the Pharisees most often is they were kind of the ones that were closest to him and how they understood the law. They were the ones that were trying to interpret the law for the people and allow the people to live it out. So Jesus is kind of messing with them, but it's a family conversation that's happening with the Pharisees. But what he points out to them is in an effort to be faithful, some people in first century Israel had ignored the calling to bless all nations. The ironic thing is by not mixing, they were being unfaithful to God. Well, here's the good news. In Jesus, faithfulness and blessing come together. In fact, Jesus shows us that this tension is not actually a thing in him. He himself is the blessing to all nations, standing in the tradition of Israel's mission. And he is the one who is the most faithful of all to God's story. So rather than conflict, in Jesus, we see that being a blessing to all people is being faithful to the story. So when the woman begs him to heal her daughter, Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Again, this sounds awful. But again, this is what many believe that a rabbi should say about a Canaanite. This is really difficult for us to understand, not only because of the cultural distance that we experience today, but also because the gospels are not writing like journalism. They're not trying to give us this like detailed account of this happened and this happened and this happened. They're giving us kind of a stylized account here. So there's a lot of different layers to this. But it's safe to say that what Jesus does is what many people would expect a Jewish teacher to say. No one was shocked because he was not there for her. He was there for Israel. But then this courageous lady talks back to him. She pushes back. She has gumption. She's not intimidated. She knows Jesus can heal her daughter and she refuses his response. <laughs> so, you know, remember he says, is it right for, uh, to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs? And then she says, yeah, yes, it is, Lord. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. At his, at his pushback, this woman looks Jesus in the eye and says, in essence, your tradition has to be better than this. There has to be more. There has to be something in your story for me. 
This woman understands Israel's story better than some of the best Pharisees understand it. She understands that this story begins with the Jewish people, but is ultimately for everyone. Remember, the word Israel literally means the one who wrestles with God. So this woman is being very Israel-like here. She is wrestling with God over the promises and the prohibitions. She knows something about God's character, about God's heart and his desire to bless and heal and restore. And she's contending for that. She's fighting for that. And then Jesus goes further and basically says, you know, you're right. You are one of those people who has great faith and he heals her daughter. It's fascinating here that Jesus lets the Canaanite woman teach the lesson. He lets the Canaanite woman teach the crowds. He even places himself in the position of someone who is losing the argument, who is wrong. And in doing this, Jesus, the new Joshua, redeems the world, not through killing the Canaanite like Joshua did, but through healing. And this is God's desire healing for all nations. This story is a foreshadowing of the first major debate in the early church after Christ's death, after his death, resurrection, and ascension. The question was whether Gentile Christians should be seen on equal footing as Jewish Christians. Can they be welcomed in? If they have faith in Christ, can they be welcomed into the family? Paul fought hard to convince the Jerusalem council, many of whom knew Jesus that Gentiles were part of the story too. And that's been the plan all along. Well, what happens in this story is this Canaanite woman's faith breaks through the waiting period. It was startling to the crowds and it's startling to us. And here's something equally startling. Most of us here today are closer to the position of the Canaanite woman in this story than to any other character. We are Gentiles not members of the family of Israel. We would have been called dogs if we were persistent in faith. But because of God's great mercy, because he's opened up a new world, because this has always been the story, because of God's faithfulness and who God is, because of his declaration in his son Jesus, we're part of the family. And we're not just given scraps from the table. We're invited today to the family supper table. The proclamation of grace changes the world. It changes everything. The world is new. We're no longer bound by guilt. Fear no longer runs our lives. Revenge no longer fuels us. Now, if we could just get that, (laughs) not only in our minds, but in the core of who we are. This is why the Eucharist and the other sacraments and worship and prayer are so important because we step into these formative rhythms of grace. We're shaped by God's new world, not by the stuff of the old world. And in doing so, we're changed. Today, may we hear the words of Joseph, which are the words of Jesus. You who are wearied by guilt and shame, come to me. You who are paralyzed by the fear of death and of wrath, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. Do not be afraid. 
This is good news for us. And this is good news for our neighbor. In Christ, faithfulness and blessing go together because God is always blessing. May we look for teachers in unlikely places that shatter the divisions we so often create. And in a world of division, exclusion, and injustice, may we fight, may we wrestle for the world God is making, even when it seems like all we have are dreams of it. May we hear the good news that we are forgiven, that God's gifts are irrevocable, that our faith is great, and that our healing has come. Amen.